Thompson, who's a scholar, uh, described this uh, imaginary journey. And I, I want you to take it with me for a second. I want to introduce this, the whole idea of resetting our view of what church is. So I'll, what I want to ask you to do today is just go on this little journey with me, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. It's a really simple point I want to make today, but I want to encourage you and ask you to rethink what you think church is. Now, I want you to imagine yourself uh, around 300, 250, 300 A.D., and you are a person who lives uh, around the, the Mediterranean, uh, from Spain, modern Spain, over to modern Iraq. And as far north as the British Isles and you know, northern Europe and, and as far south as uh, northern Africa. And imagine that, that you live in any of those places. And for some reason, you are forced to travel from where you live a, a good distance to another place. Uh, you know, some, the pressure of some circumstance. And you know, let's just say you're a woman, which would be very difficult. Maybe a woman with a, a couple of children. And you have to travel during that time from around 250, 300 A.D. to around 1500 A.D. Just imagine you're, uh, you're, you're walking, because mostly they walked. Uh, and if they, if they did any boat travel, it, you know, would, it would be a very uh, difficult travel. Nothing like uh, ocean-going travel now or plane flights. But imagine... Uh, the challenges that that person, that, that woman would face. And we know historically during this whole period of time that this woman, through every part of her journey, would be scanning the horizon for one thing. You know what it would be? She would be looking for a church. Because during all that time, people knew the church was a place that would welcome them and love them and care for them and protect them and, and be a, the presence of love in the absence of love. And that was history. This is not made up. This is not, you know, Christians trying to feel good about themselves. It's the truth. They would look for cathedrals. They would look for monasteries. They'd look for humble little chapels. They would go into towns where they didn't have any church buildings and they would find the Christians there because the Christians were hospitable to strangers. That it was part of how they lived because of what they believed. And it was true all over that huge swath of the world. Just think of that. How many millions of square miles that is. And that is what people could count on wherever they went. Those buildings and those people would love well and would care for strangers. And they couldn't expect that kind of welcome anyplace else. What made the church then unique wasn't that they had more of Jesus than than people today have. But they understood their identity, and they lived out that identity in a way that much of the church in the world today, especially in the West and, and Europe and the United States, doesn't live out that identity. It's a real simple identity. 
Now, I want to, this little audience participation part. So, I want you to think of people that you work with and, you know, your neighbors and friends, people you play on sports teams with or you play cards with. When, if, if, you, if you know their mind about this, if, if, if someone was to mention to them uh, in a word association sort of way, they said, church, tell me what you think of. What would those people say? Out loud, just out loud, don't think it. It's not going to help me here. What? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. What? War. War. Condemning. Pardon? Judgmental. Judgmental. Religious. Yeah. What else? What would, what would, if you were asking them, and and maybe this has never uh, come into a conversation you had, maybe you're asking them what the identity of the church is, what do you think they would say? What's, what's the identity of the church? What's it supposed to be? What do you think people, they would say? It's supposed to be holy? Okay. You got friends that are conversant with that kind of language. Marilyn, that's pretty cool. Okay. Holy. What else? Pardon? Loving? Okay. They would hope the church was loving? Accepting? It, was, it would be giving? Safe. One or two more. Accepting. Now, just for a moment, think of the gap between those two sets of responses. There, there wasn't anything in the same zip code in terms of what people think of the church and what they think the church should be. What is the church and what should the church be? I mean, there, there's no, there wasn't a bit of overlap. Now, maybe people are more critical of the church than they should be, and I think that's true, but it does say something that how the church is perceived. So if someone is wandering around today, what are the two tragic things about a person who's wandering around in life with respect to the church? What would be the two tragic realities that they experience? They're not, one is they're not looking for the church. But the more tragic reality is we're not looking for them. And maybe that's why they're not looking for us. Time Magazine last year had a, a whole article on the uh, issue of loneliness because in our social media saturated age, uh, the people who study human interaction say America is uh, suffering an epidemic of loneliness. You think loneliness, man, everybody's on their phone texting and tweeting and, you know, Snapchatting and Tindering and all kinds of things, right? Isn't everybody like more wired and connected than they've ever been? And the truth is no. All the research says that over half the people in our country outside of their family have nobody that they can talk to their successes about or their struggles. And that that number goes up when you survey men. And then in that same series of articles in Time Magazine, they said that research shows that your mortality increases between 26 and 32% when you don't have enough friends. Which saying, they're saying that a lot of people in our country die 
literally for lack of community and friendship and love and relationship and someone to talk to, someone to hang out with, someone who cares about them and, 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 and someone for whom they can care. So our identity as the church used to be we are those people. The church used to own that and say we are the people who will be the friend of those that don't have friends. We will be the people who are known as uh, xenophilia, the, the, the hospitable ones, the ones who love strangers, the ones who love the outsider, the ones who love people that they don't know well. Because the, the world has always worked around your, your, your family unit is, is you know, your, your kith and kin is, is what keeps it together and keeps your life together. But we're so splintered and we all live so far away from where we're raised and far away from our family, we don't have that anymore. And even if we do, even the family is fractured and, and separated and alienated more than maybe it's ever been in our country, in our history. So, and I think, I'll give you my definition. If someone, uh, I don't think people say this, but I, I've been a pastor. I've been in this business for a long time. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, this is what I think the average follower of Jesus thinks is the church's identity. Okay, let me read this to you. The church is a group of people with whom I have a loose association based mostly on its ability to deliver spiritual service I desire. That's what most people think of church when they think of it, most Christians. And, and I don't think that I'm, I'm being uh, overly negative or I'm distorting it. I can just tell you that's the way it is. Let me read that to you again. The church is a group of people with whom I have a loose association based mostly on its ability to deliver spiritual service I desire. And what is that? The, it, that's, that's you being a follower of Jesus or we being followers of Jesus and looking at the church as consumers. And, and if there's anything we need to be saved from, it is from self-identifying as consumers. That so reduces our humanity in so many ways. Yet, we're so taught that we're really nothing more than consumers because of how hard we're marketed all the time that we begin to embrace that and we think of ourselves, yeah, consumers. I'm just a consumer. And, and I am a consumer, but I am more than a consumer. Okay? I'm more than that. I'm way more than that. I am an image bearer of God, which is it's the highest identity anybody could have. We are the image-bearing community of God. So what did Jesus think of the church. Do you think he might have a different definition of, of who the church is than that? I think he does. And I, I want to look at two passages just briefly, because I just have a real simple point, and then I, I just have, I have a, a couple of suggestions for you to consider. So if you have a Bible, open it to Luke chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, underneath the chair seat in front of you is a paperback Bible like this. And it, I'm going to start reading on page 714. Here's where the story starts. I'm sorry. Uh, I misquoted. Uh, I'm going to start reading 
at Luke 4, 14, on page 713 in these paperback Bibles. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then the tone changes. Isn't this Joseph's son? And that's, if, if you don't get the, the uh, intimation there, who is this guy? I think he is. His dad's a carpenter. You know, he's not a rabbi. He's not anybody special. Who, who, who does he think he is? And Jesus picks up on this. And now maybe in the narrative here, it's compressed and, and there's all kinds of things going on that, that Luke doesn't include. But if, you know, if you understand human interaction, you can pick up some of this. And so Jesus says to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Now, he's going to refer back to a, a famous time in Israel's history. There were many widows in uh, Elijah's time when there was a famine, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, to his people, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In other words, the prophet was sent to help someone who was in the community of their enemies. Yet, oh, excuse me, and, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, another outsider. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the cliff on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is Jesus' first sermon, right? You know, in in Texas, we call this a tough crowd, (laughs) all right? But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way, and it says, then he went down to Capernaum, okay? Now, Capernaum is down near the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's on the shore. So let's, let's go, if you could flip back one book called, to Book of Mark, to the first chapter in Mark. And I'm going to start reading in Mark 1.14. So Jesus goes to his hometown. He's rejected there. Then he goes to Capernaum. And he'd been there. And he'd already done some healing and some miracles in the whole nine yards. So in verse 14, it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. 
And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets or mending their their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee, their household, their home, and they left him in the boat and with the hired man and they followed Jesus. Now, let me take you back over this real quick. So, Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue and as was a custom, uh, people were invited, especially sort of, uh, you know, guests or people that maybe had, they, they felt like had some view of scripture were invited to read and then uh, comment on what they read. And so Jesus did that. And as he did that, he essentially said to them, through this text, he said, I am the Son of God. So when he read the passage from Isaiah 61, which is about the Messiah, and, and the Messiah was God's anointed, his servant, his son. I am God's son on God's mission. So I'm the Son of God on the mission of God. And he was saying to them, I'm going to start a new family of God that's based on me and not on the temple anymore. That I'm going to proclaim, because the Spirit's on me, the kingdom of God, and and everything you've been looking for is going to happen, but it's not going to be tied to the temple anymore. And all the people who have found their identity for all these millennia, all these centuries are being called to now find their identity in the one that made that temple me. And that temple points to me. It's a pretty radical idea. So he's saying, I'm coming to make a new family of God, a new people of God. And at that point, he's rejected by his hometown. And this is going to happen a lot through Jesus' life. But there's going to also be people that will welcome him. And they'll embrace what he's inviting them into. So he, uh, he invites these, he goes down to Capernaum and he sees two sets of fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he invites both of them. And now this is real important. They leave their household, which was the, the primary sociological unit of the ancient world, that you totally depended on that you, I, your identity was based on that family and your role in it, and they began to follow Jesus. Because all along the way, he was saying, I'm the son of God who's on the mission of God. And if you believe in me, you're going to be part of a new family of God, and that you're going to be invited to participate in the mission of God. So what we could take away from this with respect to what the church is, right off the bat the first chapter of the book of Mark, Jesus tells us the purpose of the church. He says the church is the people of God on the mission of God. It's not anything else but that. It's the people of God on the mission of God. It's the family of God on the mission of God. That it's replacing every other kind of family. It's not against family, but it's saying this is the family of God that you enter into by faith in Jesus, 
the Son of God. And everything that Jesus, the Son of God, has is now yours as an inheritance. And you are the family of God. But you're not just the family of God. You're the family of God on the mission of God. So what this means for us is this means really big changes in how we live out our faith. It, it means this, that the church isn't the building, it, is, it isn't the institution, it's not the denomination, it's not the pope, it's not the pastors and leaders. The church is the family of God on the mission of God. The church is not a place we go. We don't go to church, we are the church. Because the church is the family of God on the mission of God. The church is not a group of people with whom I have a loose association based mostly on its ability to deliver spiritual service I desire. It's the family of God on the mission of God, which challenges largely the way that almost all of the United States and many of the Christians who follow Jesus in the United States and participate in church see church. But it's actually, we're trying to get back to our roots of what Jesus meant the church to be. It's the family of God on the mission of God. So, I just have two things to encourage you to consider. We have to see ourselves differently. We have to see ourselves individually differently as I'm just not a spiritual consumer that connects with God directly, but I'm part of a community. You you can't be a child of God without a family. You get that? the connection there, but we think that way because it's very American. It's part of our culture. But then that cuts us off because here's the thing. It cuts us off from this fullness of what we can learn and experience because we can't learn and experience it without others. We can't. Yet we still try to as, as American Christians. And, and then we get frustrated that the church isn't delivering what we want, it can't deliver what we want when we view it that way. And we, when we engage God in a relationship with him that way. If we're just consumers of spiritual services, we will, ne- we, that is the, I don't know, even know if that's the lowest common denominator of what faith is, but it's pretty close to it. And if we think that way, we're, we've missed it completely, utterly. And unfortunately, you know, that, that idea has just been perpetuated by what, the, the, what you see through media and sometimes through books and, and what the, how the church portrays things. We, we just say, we, we position ourselves to the world as a dealer of services, of spiritual services, when, it, not that that's not true, but it's more than that. It's more than that. There's something greater that's there than that. Now, it means that Jesus intends for you to be part of the family of God. And I, I'm just going to suggest something simple. I'm going to, as, as my friend Tom Paulquette says, I want to put the cookies on the lowest shelf <laughs> so everybody can reach it. This is not a challenging thing at first. But if... if you want to be part of the family of God, I want to encourage you to start doing life together with other followers of Jesus in, in a simple way. And this is, this is, you figure this out. I'd like to encourage you to at least three times a week, and one of them would be coming on Sundays, to connect 
with other believers, not through social media, face-to-face, okay? Social media does not count. It's pseudo-connecting. In fact, you know, neuroscience tell us now that connecting through social media probably dulls us to meaningful face-to-face connections, that it wires us neurologically not to be able to enjoy an experience or even desire face-to-face human contact. So it's a weird thing that's going on. And the, the more that we research the impact of social media, uh, we're, and, and it is becoming more and more a part of our lives, the more we're learning it, it isn't a good part of our lives. In fact, I, I just hope you guys, when you come to church, you put your phone on airplane mode. Is that, and I don't want to get on anybody particularly, but you're like Martha. If you, if you sit in church with your phone, now you may say, well, John, you're just boring. Okay. I, I, but you know what? Jesus spoke through donkeys. Uh, God, God can speak through the strangest uh, media, human media, the poorest human media. But Martha was really distracted when Jesus was in her house because she wanted to host him. And Jesus said, Martha, you're worried and distracted by so many things. And, but Mary's chosen the better part, to sit and listen to me. So you're, you're training yourself to be distracted from a place where you could possibly hear from God. And then that goes out into the world where everybody expects you to be distracted all the time. And then you're even less likely to hear from God in that environment. And he's there. He's speaking all the time. So coming to a a gathering with a small group or a gathering on on a, a weekend like this where we're all together and plugging into social media during that time, just you're being a Martha. And... Martha missed who knows what of what Jesus was saying and doing right there because she was distracted. So you have to, you have to, uh, you have to curate your life for the best things that God is sending your way. And that just requires some attentiveness. So I encourage you to connect with other believers at least three times a week. And You've got 21 occasions during the week where you eat that are some of the best opportunities to to connect with people meaningfully. I just encourage you to start at least once a week inviting people over to your home to eat with you or going to their home. And save money. Don't go to restaurants. Uh, go, Go to restaurants less. Your home is the best place for you to have meaningful connections. Restaurants can be loud and distracting and you know, we feel social pressure to sort of posture and certain things. It, 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 it detracts from what face-to-face kind of things can happen. So I encourage you to just, in your little network of friends, just start connecting with, in the body here, Christian friends, start connecting at least three times a week like that. That will help you more towards being the family of God. Now, it also means if, if the church is the family of God on the mission of God, it means that Jesus is inviting you into his mission. All of us. And his mission is really, was really simple. It was very, very clear. To make followers of Jesus 
who make other followers of Jesus, who form families on mission. You can look at all the activities of Jesus, and they could be summed up. And he said it. And you can see that that's what the church took away in the book of Acts. Everyone who was a follower of Jesus that he brought together, they saw him invite people to follow him and then teach them to make other followers of Jesus who then form families on mission. Small communities, households, who did life together. And then what they do is they purposed to love well in the world that they lived in, love people well and serve them and build friendships with people who don't yet know Jesus and invite those people into your life. As you're following Jesus, invite them in to follow Jesus with you. Because if it, I, I, I restated what I think like our ultimate vision as the church is. It's really simple. It is to love well in Jesus' name so that we become the difference-making institution in our city. The only way that we make a difference in our city is if we love well. And that is not easy. But we start loving well when we love our neighbor well, the people that are right around us. And we start loving them by inviting them into our lives in real simple, normal, doing life together ways, eating together. If people who were Republicans and Democrats had more meals together, we wouldn't have seriously the rancor we have today. People would get to know each other. People would start thinking differently. Yeah, I've told you this. What surveys are telling us is that our country is, is, uh, has historically been right and left leaning, but there's been these two, like if, if, the, if, if there was a politically a, a mountain of people who believed in conservative way, uh, about con- conservatively with respect to politics, and there, there were people who believed in a more pro- progressive way, those people, those two mountains would overlap with a little gap between them. With every year, these two groups of people are moving apart where there's hardly any overlap between them. And I've read a whole huge, just flood of articles of people who said, I can't believe all these people voted this way. And then I started talking to them and I started realizing why they voted that way. That they had a perspective that I dismissed and put down from both sides of the aisle, so to speak. But if you never talk, you never realize that these other people you know, are not blood-sucking zombies. <laughs> it, you're enemies of humanity. Because if, if all you did is look at Facebook, that's what you'd think. Re- Republicans think about Democrats, and Democrats think about Republicans. But they're not. The large majority of people, they, they care about our country. They just have a different viewpoint. But we've demonized them because we don't know them. Now, there's some people you can get to know, and they're still knuckleheads, right? But we're supposed to love knuckleheads, because truth be told, we are all knuckleheads. And Jesus loves knuckleheads, like us. Let me tell you, on, on, on my best day, I'm not the best person in the room. And Jesus still loves me. And his love is what has helped me to become a little better person. 
a better version of myself. That's what love does. But if we just, we just live in our little cocoon and we don't connect with those people who are different, we don't love them well, because loving well requires loving people who are different than you and who disagree with you, you know, in significant ways, requires loving well. Inviting them into your home requires loving well. I don't just mean once in a while. I mean on a consistent basis. Serving them meaningfully requires loving well. So this whole huge epidemic of loneliness and alienation and isolation, if we will embrace the identity of the church as the family of God on the mission of God, we have the potential to have a profound impact on our community and, and, and live for the common good in ways that nobody else can. Because Jesus, like, this is the thing about the table. You know, I always wind up and I try to bring it to this point. Oh, well, <laughs> there's no communion on there. So we're going to do imaginary communion today. <laughs> if there were bread and wine here, it would be a picture of the heart of what makes us the family of God and what is the mission of God. That he wants everybody to be at this table because this table is the only hope that they have in their life, the only hope we have. And it's this one thing, this table, the cross, Jesus, that breaks down all those barriers it breaks down our pride and our judgment and our, the worst part of us and, and starts changing us. That table is what does that. The cross, the picture of the cross that's in the table. The picture of the person of Jesus. So Jesus was the son of God who was on the mission of God. And when we believe in him, we become part of the family of God that's on the mission of God. And our mission is to make followers of Jesus who make followers of Jesus who form these families on mission and invite, who then serve their community and love their friends and invite them to be part of that and do life with us. Even if you don't want to follow Jesus, come do life with us. Come eat dinner with us. Come and help us serve people in the community because that's what we do. Because that's what, why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. And we're going to keep doing it because we keep connecting to him and his love keeps moving in our hearts to not just think about ourselves but think about other people. So, when you go home this week, I just want you to consider that. How, how does Jesus want you to connect with people at least three times a week? And in what, in what ways does Jesus want you to connect with people who, who are outside your Christian community that you can love well and serve well and then begin to invite in your life and, and even begin to invite in to following Jesus with you?